0: Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all this morning, and just a wonderful blessing to be together today as we have worshiped Christ our Lord through singing and through prayer and through thinking about the great truths of Scripture. And and each week that goes by, it's uh, just a reminder for me personally how grateful I am that I am here, that my family is here to be with you. What a privilege it is to serve you And uh, not just to preach God's word, but to walk together and share life together. And so uh, I'm just very grateful. And so I'm going to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 2. And uh, we are going to read verses 8 through 15. 8 through 15. Now this morning, we're going to preach a part one of two sermons on the sufficiency of Christ. The title of the message today is Christ, Our Sufficiency, part one. And we'll be looking at the sufficiency of his person. Then next week, we'll look at the sufficiency of his cross. And so um, as, we, as we do so, um, we're, today we're going, to just, we're going to read Colossians 2, verse 8 through 15 to get the entire context of what Paul writes here as we are now in the heart of the letter. So stand with me this morning as we consider Christ our sufficiency and we read the inspired word of God. The Scriptures say, beginning in verse 8, "...see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority." them in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. Thank you for your glorified and majestic son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and thank you that he came from heaven to be our savior, and thank you that he went to that cross and on that cross he died for our sins. And he canceled every debt that we had before you. And through him, we are totally and fully forgiven and made right with you. There is no other gospel and there is no other truth greater than Christ crucified and risen from the dead. May he be exalted today. May you pour out your Holy Spirit May you illuminate our hearts and minds that we may know just a little bit more of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And may then we go forth sharing him with a world who desperately needs to know him. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are hundreds of ways that people are deceived by criminals online. Sometimes, I get notifications, and I'm pretty sure you probably do too, I'll get notifications on my phone that look like they're from the phone company, or they're from Amazon, and sometimes there's even a hyperlink that if I click it, it'll take me to this wonderful gift that I had no idea that I had even, it was in the running to actually win, and you know it's interesting because it'll look legitimate, and even when you get those on your email, you get those emails, right? those spams, and, and it'll actually say that it's from someone you know or from a company you know. And if you, but if you look really careful, carefully, even though it may look legitimate, usually there's one character or letter that has been changed so that you'll be deceived and be convinced that it's legitimate. Fake emails, text, hyperlinks, whatever they are, they abound everywhere and they are meant to deceive so that people can get our data and get our information. I've warned my kids and my family members for years and repeated it often, be careful. Do not open anything that is sent to you and if it is too good to be true, it is most likely a lie. And all of us, I'm sure, make uh, take great efforts to make sure that our computers and our devices have antivirus software and that our data is protected from malicious attacks. I use that as an illustration because right here in the very open, in in this passage, beginning in verse 8, we have an instructive warning that... We might say is a spiritual antivirus protection for us and it will protect our souls and paul issues this Flowing right out of verses six and seven remember in verse six and seven paul says therefore as you have received christ jesus the lord So walk in him rooted and build up in him and established in the faith Just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving and in those two verses paul gives a summary of his intro to the letter taking us all the way back to verse one of chapter one where he presents the grand and glorious vision of christ and salvation those two verses also give a blueprint for the christian life and how the gospel drives us and drives our spiritual growth those two verses also serve us as we are prepared to encounter all sorts of dangerous threats That exists on the marketplace of ideas and religion. There are all kinds of ideas that are out there, Paul knows, that are a threat to the gospel. And so when you come to verse 8, Paul launches into a series of warnings to the young, this young church about dangerous threats that are designed to deceive, to delude, and to disqualify them or to derail them from the truth of the gospel. And in the verses that we have read this morning, Paul programs these believers with anti-deception truth that will protect them from false teaching. And so here's the key. I mean, here's the key to the anti-deception uh plan that Paul has. The key truth is this. Christ is sufficient. That's the key. Christ is sufficient and these verses demonstrate that he is sufficient and that you have all you need for salvation and spiritual life in him. That's what these verses point us to. And, 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 And what you'll see as we walk through them is that knowing who Christ is and all that you have in the gospel will protect you from counterfeits, from scams, and imposters who offer fulfillment and salvation in some other means. That's what these verses will do. And so we're going to see three things In verses 8 through 12 specifically, and then we'll continue next week, we're going to see three things that will help us. One, we will see, you will see that you are captive to Christ, that you are complete in Christ, and that you are converted to Christ if you are a believer. Those three things make up Paul's anti-deception plan for the church. So let's look at the first thing. You are captive to Christ. You are captive to Christ. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So basically, Paul says, don't let any false teacher or any false gospel or any bad way of thinking take you captive. What is the positive way of saying that, right? The negative reflects the positive. The positive thing that Paul's communicating is, is that you are captive to Christ. So be captive to Christ and don't let anything else take you captive. So notice that Paul then issues a command to the church. That's what the first phrase is. See to it, look at it, that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit. That's strong language that Paul uses. Don't let anyone take you captive. He wants this new church and these young believers to understand that there are godless ideas everywhere that will carry them away from the truth. And and, and that phrase, take you captive, is it's military language, like an enemy army taking prisoners of war and then uh, escorting them or removing them or taking them into slavery. And he specifically uses two nouns to identify these enemy forces that want to take us captive. Philosophy and empty deceit. See it? Philosophy and empty deceit. By philosophy, he doesn't mean the disciplined study of wisdom or knowledge or the disciplined study of of philosophy or philosophers. Paul is simply warning us about unbiblical ways of thinking that do not derive from what God has revealed in his word and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And these things will be, they will seem appealing, They'll sound attractive, but they're empty deceit, he says. In other words, the wisdom of the world is, it's empty, it's bankrupt. And not only is it empty, we have to be alert because though empty, it will seem, it will on a human level might sound good or even make sense to some level unto some degree. But Paul says they're hollow, they have no substance, and they are incapable of providing true fulfillment to the believer. So as I'm thinking about that, I understand, if, we, if I just read a little bit further, I understand that what, what Paul has in mind clearly for the church here in its context are forms of of regional secularism or paganism right they worshiped all sorts of deities you had a mix of that you had religious legalism that came from resurrecting some of the some of judy some of some of former judaism and you had all this mixed together so paul has that in mind for them all of it designed to move them away from christ but let's think about it from our angle today it's really no different is it what are some of the clear threats that we face today I I think that we could narrow down the two threats. Uh, I think we could narrow the threats that we face today, the philosophy and empty deceit, with two phrases. The religion of self and the godless philosophy of self-autonomy. I really do. I I believe that that that, that would summarize the philosophy and empty deceit that we face today. The the religion of self, of self-improvement. Of self-made salvation, self-esteem, self-discovery, self-reliance. Listen, everywhere you turn, you are hearing the message of self. Listen to the commercials that you'll hear tonight. We, we, we self-determine, we self-identify, we self-improve, right? I, I mean, that is embedded in our entertainment culture, embedded in education, Embedded in politics and even in religion, all around us we hear the proclaimed message that we can save ourselves and that self and the pseudosciences, right? Those are the sciences of how we feel, right? How I feel determines truth. And we become our own authorities. That's what we, that is what is going on. It's really not a lot different. You'll see that in coming weeks than what Paul faces there. But what it, what it, what it does is it becomes troubling when we see Christians embrace this. And then what happens when you embrace the religion of self or you embrace the philosophy of the world that is empty of Christ, what happens is you will begin to deny the sufficiency of scripture. And once a person begins to deny the sufficiency of scripture, then the gospel will eventually be abandoned. Let, let me illustrate by conversations I had just with my, my oldest daughter this week. She was at college and she heard a lecture at a Christian institution about sexuality and gender, where it was told that biology determines sex, but the person, the person, the individual, chooses gender. Furthermore, sexuality is a matter of genetics, not choice. And so the conclusion walking away is, well, we're not sinners with a corrupt nature and evil desires who need salvation. We're just humans who need to be true to ourselves. And if that's all that's needed is for us to be true to ourselves, then what do we need the gospel for? What do we need Christ for? What do we need salvation for? I mean, clearly we don't need to repent of anything. We don't need to believe in anyone except ourselves. And therefore, there's no need for a Savior or for a cross or for an empty tomb if we buy into those lies of self-religion. Do you see how empty and hollow that is? And church, we need to be prepared for engaging a world that as this all unfolds in our larger culture, let us be ready to receive people who have discovered or have realized the emptiness of the world, the religion of the world, and let us receive them so they can find hope and salvation in Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. So Paul here issues a command To the church about these dangerous philosophies, but then paul does he characterizes godless philosophy and worldview Look at the three things that he says See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to christ three characteristics about godless philosophy One, they're according to human tradition. One commentator explains that this means that it's rooted in man's attempt to arrive at truth apart from God and apart from divine revelation. That is threaded into our society and pours over even into the life of the church. Hear me. Nothing human is a reliable authority for truth. The reason is simple. Humanity is corrupt and wicked in the core of its nature. And that corruption and wickedness taints everything. That's why the pseudosciences, and that's why the social sciences, and for that matter, that's that's why nothing human can be fully depended upon because sin taints all of it. It's not that in the realm of common grace, we cannot benefit from studies and discoveries That human beings make even unbelievers through the arts and the sciences certainly we can however scripturally human insight human proposition human philosophy or ideas they are insufficient in fact we could go as far as to say they are bankrupt according to paul And they are found wanting when it comes to understanding who we are as people, what our central problem is, and what our greatest need is. So we can't go to the world. We can't go to the religion to find those answers. It is according to human tradition. But Paul also says it's according to the elemental spirits of the world. Godless worldviews are rooted in the pride and deceit of Satan. Again, look at the language of the text. The elemental spirits of the world. It was the devil that introduced to man the idea of meaning and fulfillment in the created world apart from God. That is demonic. It was the devil that introduced the idea that we can define ourselves, that we can determine truth. Go back to Genesis chapter one, two, and specifically Genesis three. Satan introduced this into the cosmos. And so whether it is false religion that says we can be saved by our works and merit, or whether it is secular paganism that it claims that we create truth and define ourselves, all of it, and I mean all of it, is demonic and it's satanic. And here's the tragedy. If you don't believe me, look at 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when I'm a teacher and I'm sitting and I'm listening to professional development and I've got all this pseudoscience, all this social science coming at me, you know what i got to have? i got to have that gospel filter on. When I'm sitting there and I'm listening to those professors undermine the truth of the gospel and the authority of scripture, I've got to filter that through the truth that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that leads us to the third thing that Paul says. The biggest problem of it all, it's not about we're right and you're wrong. It's about the fact that all of it leads away from Jesus. From Christ and the cross. None of these things are according to Christ and the gospel. And that's why we don't rely on human wisdom and worldly philosophy or other humanistic theories. We don't take any of that as Christians and grit it over the Bible. We take the Bible and we grit it over everything else. We don't allow democratic theories, critical race theory, gender studies, cultural Marxism, or any false gospel to override the authority and sufficiency of the word of God and salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And and so, so, so Paul is, again, the threats we see today are no different than they have ever been. They're just repackaged. And so Paul says, the, the biggest problem of all of it is it's not according to Christ. So hear me. This is something that I, I, want my, I, want, I want every young person to know, every teenager, every young adult. I mean, all of us need to know this. But especially as we go out into the world, this, this is our foundation. The Bible is our authority. Because it is the word of God. And God is the one who orders reality. Determines identity establishes right and wrong defines truth and he ultimately judges Everything according to his perfect word and listen that is never going to be accepted by our corrupt natures We're always going to cringe at that in the depth of our fallen natures And we should not expect secular powers or even fallen culture to embrace that That's why our only hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ For when we are rescued by him and surrender to his lordship, he reorients our lives according to Christ. You are captive to Christ if you're a believer. And in fact, he has saved us from sin and self. And now the gospel lights our path with the truth of his saving word. So this morning we need to see how this is applied then. Don't be deceived by unbiblical thinking, by unbiblical worldviews or systems or ideas. Be captive to Christ alone. You know why? Because he's sufficient. And if you're captive to Christ alone, then you will not be deceived by his grace and power working in you. You won't be deceived. You'll not only be able to navigate and filter you'll be able to be a witness to unbelievers of the truth that has saved you. Because they're not the enemies. They're the mission field. And that's why we need, to, we need to live in such a way that we demonstrate that Christ is sufficient. So what about you? What are some of the things that have come at you this past week that would not be according to Christ? So if you're captive to Christ... You're captive to Christ because he is sufficient. And if you're captive to Christ, that leads us to a second thing. You are complete in Christ. You're complete in Christ. Look at verse 9. Paul says, for in him, Christ, who he just mentioned, that all this other stuff that's coming at us in the world is not according to Christ and the grace of the gospel. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So now Paul gives us the second part of his anti-deception plan. Gotta roll with the original illustration there. Right? The first one is you're captive to Christ. Let your thinking and your heart be captive to His sufficiency. But number two, you need to be reminded that you were complete in Him. And what that means is, is that if I, think about the, the, that idea of the spam and all the, the, the things that are coming at us that are out there on the world wide web and, and in uh, the in cyber crime and all of that, if I know the real website, if I know the real email, well, I'm not going to click on a link that takes me to the false one. Bankers can identify a counterfeit because they have so carefully examined and studied real currency. And so, what Paul says here is, listen: if you know who Christ is and what you have in Him. Well, then that'll be a defense for you so that you don't fall for something else. So Paul tells us that we are complete in Christ because of, first, Christ's sufficiency as God. Look at verse 9. Again, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now compare that to philosophy and empty deceit. Empty deceit fullness in christ see the see the, the contrast christ's efficiency is god is what paul presents in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily this is one of the clearest references to christ's deity in fact go to chapter 1 verse 19 because there's another one and i i want you to i'm going to read it it says this for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell Circle the word was. That's past tense. Go to chapter 2 verse 9. It's present tense. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells presently bodily in Christ. So through the incarnation, the eternal son of God took on human flesh. That's what chapter 1 verse 19 is referring to. But what we understand is, is that He has always been God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That did not change when he was born. What happened was full humanity was added to his deity, making Jesus the God-man through the virgin birth, through the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth. John's gospel picks it up this way. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth So the glory that john mentions is the fullness to which paul refers the fullness of god paul says made its home in christ in his flesh bodily see the word bodily in his flesh in his humanness so the fullness of God made its home in Christ, in his humanity, forever. And because Jesus is fully God, he is able to be our Savior. Notice that in 2.9, again, it's in the present tense. In other words, the fullness of God was in Christ, chapter 1, verse 19. We go back there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the incarnation, Right? When the Son of God became man, but in chapter 2, verse 9, you have the present tense, meaning that Christ is presently the God-man. He didn't just become the God-man. He right now is the God-man. Dane Ortland points this out, that our faith is not simply in a historical figure or in an idea of theology. Our faith is an actual person. Who, yes, he became human, but he is today, he is in heaven presently at the Father's right hand, and he is alive and well today. He is not a concept, not an ideal, not a force. Jesus Christ is real, and the whole fullness of deity dwells in him now. Even as he is in heaven now, he is now our all-sufficient Savior. And because of that, We are complete in him. We are complete in him. So Paul says, okay, we have Christ's sufficiency as God. But then look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Christ's sufficiency is God. But then in verse 10, Paul shows us Christ's sovereignty is Lord. He, this God-man, this Jesus. Jesus fully God and fully human, is also the head of all authority and rule. And I'll just give you my translation of that. And he is yours. He's yours. That's who is yours. That's your savior. That's your king. That's what Paul's trying to say to them. Paul says that that Jesus... Not only is he the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, he says that Jesus is the head right now of all rule, all authority. You know what that means? He's sovereign. He, Jesus, the one who created everything, the one that sustains the universe, he has authority over death, over hell, over the grave. Jesus Christ is the one to whom angels bow and before whom demons tremble. And he is the one who is greater than all governments, all kings, all politicians, all judges, all powers, all feelings, all emotions. He's greater than everything because he is the sovereign, immortal King of kings and Lord of lords. That is who we are, that is who we have complete salvation from. So Paul presents here. To show how complete we are in him. That the reason we are complete in him is because of his sufficiency as God, but his sovereignty as Lord. And here's the question then we have to ask. Okay, Paul, so what has this God and king over all rule and third authority, what has he done for us? Look at verse 10 again. And you have been filled in him. Now, you've got to you capture this. Paul here shows us Christ's satisfaction to the soul. This Lord has made us complete in salvation. Because Christ is who he is, John MacArthur writes, we have been made complete in him. His fullness is imported to us. The one in whom the fullness of God dwells has filled us up. Filled who? Weak, flawed, struggling sinners. This God, our Savior, has filled us with all the benefits of salvation that come from him. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been snorkeling? This would maybe help you understand what, what we're saying. So when you go snor- snorkeling, you go out to the to deep waters, like way out, away from land. You're way out there. The water is dark blue. You get out there, and all you can see is the vastness of the ocean, right? And so what happens is, is that you stand on the edge of that boat, and then you plunge. You jump into the water. And when you jump in, you're completely covered. You're completely covered by the vastness of the ocean, the water covers you up completely and and that's the idea here is is that Christ his greatness is imported to us his vastness is imported to us it covers us he surrounds us and once you plunge into those waters you then all you can see is the water all around you the vastness of the ocean and then you put your head under the water and what do you see when you when you're snorkeling i mean you should see You should see all the wonder and splendor that's beneath the vastness of that ocean following me You see all the coral reefs and all the sea creatures and all the all the things that are just wonderful and inspiring and beautiful to see It's endless The the point here is is that christ is that ocean? And when you are filled with him, the deeper you go into the gospel, the more that you will experience the vastness of his greatness. You will be filled with the wonders of his divine love and of his glorious person. And what you will find once you're in Christ is that in him, the further you go in walking and growing in him, you will see that he has Whatever you need, forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, right? All of the wonderful things of our salvation, peace, hope, wisdom, strength, it's all found in him. You don't need to go anywhere else because you are filled in him. That's Paul's point. So so, so the temptation for us is then, To go find meaning and fulfillment and hope in success, in education, in our work, in our relationships, our pleasures, sports, activities, hobbies. I mean, people plunge into drugs and alcohol and all sorts of forms of addictions. They they go to those things to find meaning and hope. And Paul says, for you believers... You don't need to go anywhere else because you have been filled in him. That's why Jesus says in John 4, he says to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, of this earthly water, of this physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again because the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water Welling up to eternal life because Christ satisfies the soul. So Jesus there invites the woman at the well to be satisfied in Him, to be filled in Him. And Paul here in Colossians chapter 2 says that this God, who this Christ, who the sufficiency of God is revealed and the sovereignty of God is revealed has filled you, you are filled in him. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that the church will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As we are filled with the fullness of God, when we are in that ocean of his great glory and grace, what we experience is the love and goodness of the gospel And we find over and over again that all we really need is in him. I guess if I could sum it up, I would say this. We often pray, Lord, give me strength. Give me wisdom. Give me this. Give me that. Give me peace. Give me hope. But after we pray that, what Paul wants us to realize is I've asked for it, but I already have it. Because I have it in him. And so part of the whole Christian life and Christian growth is discovering more hope, more peace, more understanding, more joy, and all the forgiveness and grace of salvation that is mine in Christ. We just need to live in what we already have. That's the point of being filled in him. And when we begin to live in, In what we already have through Christ, we will find what John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, in Christ. So the question that I would ask you today is, are you filled and satisfied with Christ? Are you realizing that he is all that you need? Because you are totally complete in him, Christ, the eternal son of God. He is sufficient. And the more that you understand that not only are you captive to Christ, but you are complete in Christ, then you will have a defense against the world's philosophies and ideas that want to draw you away from him. But that leads us to a third observation. We are not only captive to Christ, we are not only complete in Christ, but thirdly, you are converted to Christ. Look at verse 11. So, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then verse 11, in him. Notice how Paul keeps saying in him. A circle every time you see the pronoun him or he. There's this completeness of our salvation. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So what Paul does here is he gives us the third part of anti-deception. True conversion and union with Christ. And the way he illustrates our union with Christ and the conversion we've experienced is first spiritual circumcision of the old nature. Verse 11, so in him also you were circumcised. Now for us Gentiles 2,000 years later, this doesn't necessarily resonate clearly for us. But what Paul is doing here is, is he is drawing from Israel's past and he's using the sign of the old covenant to demonstrate what has happened to believers in their conversion. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a surgical act that involved the cutting of the part of a man that produces life and passes along sin to the next generation. It was a sign. It was not meant to save. It was a sign that illustrated man's deep need for spiritual life, for new life, for a new nature that can only be done by the work of God inwardly. It was never meant to be an outward ritual that actually made somebody forgiven or a member of God's family spiritually. Here's evidence of it. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Listen to what Is written, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God has always been speaking to the need of our heart because our hearts are corrupt. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a member of the covenant community of God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now, how do we make sense of this? Well, Paul is using circumcision in a twofold way. He uses circumcision first to show that we have had changed hearts, a circumcision of hearts, if you will, made without hands. Okay, so if our conversion isn't made without hands, it's not produced by human ability or initiative, who is the one then that does the work of changing us? The Holy Spirit. That's exactly what he's referring to. That this circumcision made without hands is a work of the Spirit. Our sinful nature nature has been cut away. In other words, when you became a Christian, there was a cutting away of the old nature, a putting off of that old flesh. That's the word he uses, right? Made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. That's Paul referring to our sinful nature. And that is how we are saved. In other words, you are saved. You became a believer not because you wised up and made a good choice. You became a believer because the Spirit of God worked in your heart and brought you to a saving knowledge of Christ and granted you the ability to repent of your sin and believe on him. The Spirit has put off our old nature. And in putting off our old nature, convicting of us of our sin and giving us new hearts, if you will, You've had a heart transplant, in essence. And this has happened by uniting you and me to Christ and his death on the cross. Because without the work of the Spirit, listen, and without the work of Christ on the cross, no one can be saved. And that takes you to the second part of this twofold way Paul uses circumcision. One, the work of the Spirit inside of us. And then, two, what Christ did on the cross now again, for us, we kind of say that's odd because but but for a, for a Jewish audience that had some some Jewish background, they would have seen this as a description of the violence of the cross, right? Look, I mean look at the text. you have been filled in, I'm sorry, verse 12. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. There's the Spirit's work by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Christ's work on the cross, the benefits of that have become ours. And and what he's referring to is the slaughter of our Savior on Calvary. The slaughter of him on, on Calvary because on the cross our sin was dealt with he died in our place and suffered what should have been ours to he was speared and slaughtered and he shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven and god's judgment and wrath was placed upon him he took the penalty of our sin that is this when it says the circumcision of christ you know what it means It's referring to the death he died. The one who knew no sin took sin upon himself and died the death of sinners for the sake of sinners so that we could be forgiven of all our sin. He's going to pick that up in verse 13 through 15. But Paul's illustration is an example or it it shows us the work of the Spirit when we became believers where we received a new heart, a new nature, and our union with Jesus' death, that is, what he accomplished on the cross, we have received by faith. You're going to see that at the end of verse 12. His circumcision, or Christ's spiritual circumcision, his physical death on the cross of Calvary, was for us, and we have received the benefit of it. And that leads us to verse 12. Verse 11, you see the spiritual circumcision example. But verse 12, you see spiritual union. Having been buried with him, see the union? We're united. We've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul draws this out and and concludes it in verse 12, showing that he is referring to We've been united to Christ. We have died to our sin. We have died to its penalty, Romans chapter 6. We have been set free and we have been buried with Christ. This shows that, that he died a real death on our behalf and that we have entered into the benefits of that death. That's why we've been buried with him. We have entered into the benefits of his death. And then look what it says, continue on. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. We have been raised to new life. We have been spiritually raised to a new existence, a life that is governed by the Spirit of God, who has brought to us a new nature, robed us in righteousness, and granted us forgiveness. Everything that Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection have become ours. And do you know where we see that pictured In baptism. That's why he mentions baptism. That's what baptism pictures. Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism shows our union with Christ. And, and so you, baptism is an outward picture of inward transformation. So so how then do all the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection come to us? Is it because we go through the ritual of baptism? No. He answers it. Look. Through faith. That's the emphasis. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. We are saved through faith. We are united to Christ through faith. Faith in the powerful working of God in the gospel. So what this text is about is about spiritual union with Jesus. It has nothing to do with baptizing infants or replacing circumcision with baptism. And the reason we know that is because the emphasis is through faith. Without faith, forget circumcision. Without faith, forget baptism. Without faith in the work of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. And so faith has united us to Christ. And faith, that is not a work of our own, but it is a gift of God. It's kind of like a marriage, right? What is yours becomes your spouse's when you enter the covenant of marriage. When you were converted, there was a, a one-sided benefit. <laughs> you follow? In marriage, it's, I, I hope at least in marriage, it's two-sided. What is hers is yours, and what is his is hers, right? But in salvation, I think I got that right. (laughs) Talk to my wife later. But in salvation, it's one-sided. What is Christ's becomes ours. And he takes our sin, and he casts it. Into the sea of forgetfulness. We are united to him. And we receive. Not only him. But all that he achieved. In the gospel. You are united to Christ. In conversion. So there's the truth applied. You are united to Christ by faith. And you share in all the benefits. Of his death burial and resurrection. And that is how we are protected from deception. That is Paul's anti-deception software for the church. The sufficiency of Christ. You have all you need for salvation and spiritual life in him. Now, everything else that comes your way, filter it through that. You're complete in him. You're captive to him. You've been converted by him. Have you? So are you captive to Christ alone? Are you complete and satisfied in him? Have you experienced conversion and now share in the benefits of the gospel? If you have not been saved, today is the day to be saved. And maybe you are saved and you are a believer. And you know what? You just need to start living in what you already have through Christ. Because then when you do, you can sing. I rejoice in my Redeemer. Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him and no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of listening. And for everyone here who has listened and tuned their heart in to your word and your truth. Holy Spirit, take it. And may you root it deep in us so that every thought will be taken captive to Christ. That we will not be deceived. That we will realize that we are complete in him, the one who is God and the one who is Lord over all. And that in the fullness of him we will live knowing that all we need is from him. And may we rest in the truth that we have been converted by him through the work of the Spirit and all of his benefits are ours through the work of your salvation. May we rest in that as we praise your name for the cross and for what he has done to save us. In his name, amen.